may be seated. I want to say that it is an honor to be with my church family again this morning bringing the message and thank you Pastor Dennis for the invitation and I uh, always, always look forward to both hearing and preaching God's word so thank you for uh, this opportunity and being so warmly received and encouraged in the ministry of the word. My text for the morning is Psalm chapter 8. This is David says to the choir master, if you read the introduction as you turn to Psalm chapter 8, and he says, it is according to the giddeth. Nobody here knows what a giddeth is, including the preacher. So we'll just skip that part. But the guys who write books that's supposed to tell us what the giddeth is, they don't know either. So, you know, we're in good company. But let's hear the word of the Lord, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is a little unusual in this sense. David just sort of erupts with praise, and he doesn't initially say why. The pattern of the psalms is oftentimes that David will rehearse part of Israel's history or his own life, and then he'll give thanks to God, and you'll know exactly what he's talking about all the way through. The event, and then, Lord, thank you for deliverance. The event, and then, Lord, thank you for provision. But he doesn't do that here. He just says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He doesn't provide details. But when we take a look at the psalm, it, it seems that at least in part, he's rejoicing at God's wisdom in dealing with his enemies. He says that God is so good and so wise that he can take the most helpless. He identifies babies and infants. And he can establish strength in such a way that he silences his enemies and his avengers, those who would seek to take revenge upon God for his goodness. David steps back even from that and seems to give thanks because he says God who is above the heavens, is always mindful of what's going on with mankind below the heavens. He says, when I look at your, the heavens, the work of your fingers, so God took with his fingers, figuratively we know, and he hung the moon in place, and he hung the stars in place, and you would assume that a God that transcendent, that big, may tend to forget about babies and infants. 
may tend to forget about the lowly and the weak, and David says that God is always mindful of him. And he says, even the Son of Man, you care for him. So the God who is transcendent has also come near, and David had experienced this numerous times. So there is God's ability to take the weak and to silence his enemies, and there is God's transcendence seen in creation, and yet his eminence, his closeness seen in his day-to-day -day interaction and care for his people. But I don't think either of those reasons are the primary reason why David just sort of explodes with praise here. I think it's in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. Because I think what David considers here is the place of man in this whole story of creation and fall and redemption and glorification. He says in verse 5 that this man of verse 4 of whom God is always mindful that he has been made a little lower than heavenly beings. He has been crowned with glory and with honor and that God has given to him dominion over everything that he has made. And he describes it like this. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just given as an illustrative list. It illustrates the kind of things over which man rules. He says that includes Sheep and oxen and the beast of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever it is that passes through the paths of the sea. He sums it up by saying that God has put all things under our feet. But it's that little phrase in verse 5 that causes so much trouble. That we have been made a little lower than heavenly beings. When you read the folks who study this stuff all of their life, you cannot get them all on the same page as to exactly what is intended here. What I'm going to try to do today is give you my take on it. But the word here, a little lower than heavenly beings, the word here is Elohim. It is a word that is used for God proper, the God. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is also used to describe the heavenly court, God and the angels, and sometimes just the angels are a part of the angels. That's why if you're reading the ESV, you see heavenly beings. If you're reading the NIV, you see angels. So man has been made a little lower than somebody and something. And the question is, who or what is it, and why does David, after considering it, begin and end his song with this phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I think what's going on in Psalm 8 is that David is singing a song which tells a much bigger story than what's contained in these few verses. He sings a song that celebrates God as creator, transcendent above creation, hung the moon and the stars in place, 
with his fingertips. But it celebrates man as caretaker of that creation. As the one who has been given dominion. And when I say man, don't be offended ladies. I mean mankind, humankind, human beings. It includes all of us who are made in the image of God. But something catches David's eye here. Something is in his mind when he writes this, that makes him say, Lord, your wisdom is glorious. And what you have done in creation and in man and in Elohim, in these heavenly beings, is amazing. And I give you praise for it. But he doesn't elaborate, so I will. When God created all things, which David is thinking about here, this language every scholar agrees harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not hard to see that. When God created all things, he established an order within creation. A hierarchy. God as creator above everything. The one who could place planets Stars, angels, and man just where he determined. And under God, within creation, he created man as a federal representative. We have a federal government. What that means is, is that when they want to vote on something, they don't call me and say, Shane, will you run up here to D.C.? And let us know what you think about this particular issue. They ask me as a citizen to elect someone who will represent my view. Good luck. (laughs) But that's the intent of the whole thing. That's how the, the thing is laid out. Find someone who most closely represents your view of things... And you send them to represent you there. They are a substitute for the folks that they represent. God put man in that place in the Garden of Eden. God was transcendent. He was above creation. Within creation, he put man, his representative, his federal head of creation. As Adam went... So all of creation went. And then there were the angels. I believe here the Elohim. I think the NIV gets it right. I think the ESV gets it right. I think you could say it's heavenly beings or angels. I think that's precisely who he's talking about. Spiritual forces in heavenly places. And they were designed, according to the book of Hebrews, as ministering spirits sent to serve humanity. And so Adam is given care of all of God's creation, but he's given this care in an isolated sort of supervised environment called the Garden of Eden. This was the place God would meet with him on the earth. They would walk and talk in the cool of the day, and he would speak with Adam face to face 
Adam was a perfect and sinless individual, but he was not yet capable of ruling all of God's creation to the extent that God would just give him the whole earth. The way that I understand the book of Genesis is that Eden is a very small part of the entire creation and that if Adam were faithful with his management of that garden, then God would over time extend his federal headship over the whole earth. How, how do you take a young man like Adam and grow him up to the point of being capable of ruling it all under God? You give him work to do. That's how you grow every young man up. You make him work. So God put him in the garden and tells him to tend the garden or dress it or cultivate it. Literally, in Hebrew, the word means work. Do the work. Name the animals. Take care of the animals. Improve the creation, subdue it, rule it, multiply on the face of the earth and fill this place. So Adam had work to do. You also, if you want to mature a young man, even a sinless one, he has to learn to deal with temptation. So God took a tree and he put it in the middle of the garden not in a corner somewhere where Adam never had to pass by it. Every day Adam had to pass by that tree. Because that's how temptation is. Even for a sinless man. This tree was called the knowledge of good and evil. And it makes sense. Some of you have heard of this tree all your life and it's never made sense why this tree was such a big deal. But think about it. If Adam had been given a small place to rule... And the goal was to give him everything. What would he need to be able to rule that? What kind of maturity would he need? He would need a maturity of discernment, of judging between good and evil, of knowing what was right and wasn't right. If the earth was going to be filled with his descendants and he was going to rule over them under God, he would need a knowledge like God's. And that's what that fruit on that tree represented. And God said to him, it's not time. You're not ready. There'll come a time. I've given you every tree of the garden to eat from, but not this one, not yet. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what I believe would have happened is if Adam would have been faithful during that probationary period, there would come a day that God gave him the fruit of that tree and given him lordship, over the earth as was originally intended. All of it under God. But Adam couldn't wait. He just couldn't wait. He dealt with work, but he couldn't deal with temptation. There was actually a third maturing process that God put him through, and that was he had to learn to deal with God's enemies. Every young man in this room, if you're going to grow up to be a mature man, you've got to learn to work, you've got to learn to deal with temptation, and you've got to learn to handle your enemies. Those were the tests that God assigned to Adam. And you know the story. You know the narrative. The enemy of God comes into the garden, the most crafty of all of God's enemies, a fallen angel. 
And he bypasses Adam and he goes to Eve and she becomes the spokesperson for the family. And Adam stands by with his hands in his pockets. And he watches them have a conversation. And Satan says to Eve, if I can make some stuff up. Now, it might be just how it happened, I don't know. He says, look, all this is yours. Yours and his. It's, it's all for you guys. You know that. Just go ahead and take it. She says, God said we couldn't, couldn't touch that fruit. She even added, God said we can't even look at it. God didn't say that, or at least it's not recorded. But in her mind, a seed is planted that God is stingy, that he's holding back, that they deserve more than what they've been given. And Adam stands by passively, not engaging the enemy, not handling the, the temptation, letting Eve handle it, she succumbs to it, and she turns and she gives the fruit to her husband, and he takes it. When that happens, Adam has failed to do the most basic work entrusted to him, which is to trust the Lord, to be patient. You know how impatient you were, man, as a young man, right? You wanted the keys to the kingdom, and you thought your dad was holding out on you too. And he was just trying to grow you up, to mature you. But you always thought you were ready, even when he said you weren't. Adam was the same way. You come by that attitude honestly. And so Adam takes that fruit because he wants that knowledge of good and evil which will allow him to rule the earth. But instead of patiently waiting for it, he grasps for it. And he takes it. And he dies. Not physically. But he is now separated from God. And yes, he does know good from evil experimentally, but he doesn't know it as a wise man would know it had he obtained it by patient obedience and trust. He knows it as a sinner knows it. And we are well aware of the consequences of that fall. At least most of them. But I would argue that there is a consequence of the fall which we are not necessarily as educated on. It, it, when I read the Bible, it's like this consequence is, is a river that emerges out of the ground it shows up, and then it goes back under, and it's an undercurrent of everything else that's going on in the Bible, but it doesn't always show itself so clearly. And that's this. When Adam fell as the federal head of creation, the roles within the created order were reversed. Originally, it was God, his appointed head, man, and angels who had been sent to serve man. But now, it's God, he never loses his place, 
spiritual forces in the heavenly places, both obedient angels and fallen angels and man. In other words, when you begin to read the Old Testament, you see that after the fall, God mediates his rule through heavenly beings. Now, look, I know how that sounds to educated Presbyterians. Right? I know that. But I can't understand scripture if I dismiss that facet. That God's expressed intention before the fall was to rule the earth through a human being. And after the fall, it's angels and demons that seem to be the mediators of God's rule in one sense or the other. You say, well, where do you see that? All over the place. But that's not a good answer. I see it in the very beginning. When Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was the first thing that God had to do other than clothe them with right clothing, which that will become a symbol all the way through Scripture too, God taking our homemade clothes, trying to cover our sin, and giving us clothes which he has made for us, garments of righteousness. But what happens then? God replaces Adam in the garden with an angel. Remember that? He drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he places one of the kinds of angels, Genesis 3.24, one of the kinds of angels at the doorway of the garden who now is the caretaker of the garden, not Adam. As the Old Testament develops, think of how many passages contrast the true and living God with beings who, if one appeared in this room right now, would be so amazing that we would all be tempted to bow down and worship it. How many passages just in the Psalms contrast God the creator with gods, little g gods, who men worship and lead men into idolatry and God hates it. Let me give you one example. Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. And I would say this is very typical of the kind of contrast you see all the way through the Psalms, and it's there for a reason. Psalm 86, verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. That's God's little g. None like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Why does the psalmist say that over and over and over again? Because he's living in a world in which God's rule is so often mediated through spiritual forces that it was very tempting to worship the spiritual forces, these heavenly beings. In fact, 
when God spoke his law to his people, it wasn't face to face as he had spoken with Adam. Do you remember how Deuteronomy says God spoke his law to Moses? Listen to Moses' song at the end of his life before Israel goes into the promised land and he rehearses that moment. He says that the law of God came from 10,000 holy ones, which is a very common term for God's angels. Remember the fire, the earthquake, the lightning at Mount Sinai? The presence of angels there. God mediated his law to angels who gave it to Moses. Stephen references this in Acts 7 verse 53 and Paul references it in Galatians 3 verse 19, the law coming through angels. I think this became such a common way of thinking in the Old Testament that when one nation went out to battle against another nation, if it was Israel versus an unbelieving nation, it was not Israel versus the unbelieving nation. It was Jehovah God against the God over this nation, little g, God. In fact, Israel in 1 Kings chapter 20 had defeated Syria in battle. And the Syrian king demanded an explanation as to why Israel had defeated them in battle. And his wise men come to him and they say, King, this is the problem. We fought them in the hills. And their God is the God of the hills. But our gods are the God of the plains. If we get them on lower ground next time, we'll whoop them. Now that sounds ridiculous. And it is. But I believe that was the common way of thinking because there were so often these invisible, powerful, spiritual entities associated with unbelieving nations that they could easily draw those kind of conclusions. That's 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23, if you want to look it up later. Or Daniel's experience. You may remember this one if you didn't know the others. Daniel has seen a vision and it disturbs him. And so he prays and he fasts for three weeks for the interpretation of the vision. And after three weeks, an angel shows up, Gabriel, one of the chief angels of heaven. And he's looking pretty worn down, if an angel can look worn down. And Daniel says, thank the Lord that you've come. And he says, this is Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. He says, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand this vision, I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, if you are disturbed at anything I've said so far, you're really going to be disturbed now. Let me just give you a preface. Because the only way that I can understand this is that God dispatches 
Gabriel to answer Daniel's prayer. And when he passes over a certain unbelieving nation, Persia, he encounters some demonic forces which cause him to have to war with them for three weeks. And God, seeing his messenger's dilemma, dispatches help, Michael, to come. And with Michael's help, he overcomes them and he brings the message to Daniel. Even as Christians, it's easy to forget that the things that we see are not the most real. When you read the Bible, this river of thought comes up like in Daniel chapter 10 and manifests itself and then it goes back under. But it is the undercurrent of everything going on in the Old Testament that man is now born a little lower than heavenly beings. I do not think originally that was the case. But now in that fallen world in which David lives, he sees that it is. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. No, that's New Testament too. Remember Paul addressing the Corinthian church? They had come out of all kinds of unbelieving backgrounds, all kinds of pagan idolatry. They have become Christians now and they want to know now that they have been taught there's one true and living God, just one, is it okay if we go back to those pagan feasts we used to attend? We could be a good witness there, Paul. Paul, you know the meat they offer to that wooden image. That wooden image is nothing. You remember how Paul counsels them? He says, this is 1 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 4. He says, concerning Things sacrificed to idols, meat offered to these idols, which are, in the Corinthians' mind, they're nothing. He said, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. For even, now listen to what Paul the Apostle says, even if there are so-called gods in heaven and on earth, and indeed if there are many gods and many lords, both little g gods, little l lords. He's talking about something. Yet for us there is but one God and Father from whom all things are and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all, all are one thing. We exist through him. So what does he say? He says that when you offer meat to an idol... The idol itself is nothing, but behind that idol, you're offering that meat to a demon. And he counsels them to have nothing to do with it. Nothing. Now, friends, this is the world in which David lived. And as he contemplates Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, all the way up to the time in which he lived... He sees that God is still Lord over all things, and that causes him to give praise. He sees that man is still the appointed representative, but he is born a little lower 
than the angels and he sees that God one day is going to use what appears to be weak and helpless to overthrow the whole thing. That's why he gives God such praise in Psalm 8. The, David, the world in which David lives was a world in which man was born a little lower than the angels and that's also the world into which Jesus Christ was born. Jesus Christ comes as the last Adam. And he comes to do what the first Adam had failed to do. Now think about it. God tested Adam with work, with temptation, with dealing with his enemies. Adam failed at the point of temptation and with dealing with the enemies of God. And so Jesus comes as the last Adam. And he has to set the created order aright. So he labors. He works in obedience to his earthly father and his heavenly father for 30 years in patient obscurity. 30 years unknown in a carpenter shop, serving his family and those around him. In fact, he did such a good job that when he did claim to be the Messiah... His brothers didn't believe him. That's a testimony to his humility, to his patience in waiting what Adam was unable to do. And then at the age of 30, he's baptized. His priestly cleansing for his public ministry. And immediately after his baptism... Satan's going to take the same shot at him that he took at Adam so many thousands of years earlier. So the Spirit of God set up this encounter because Jesus had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. Just as Adam, the first sinless man, would have had to learn obedience through his work, his temptations, his dealing with enemies. So the devil took Jesus to a holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, Matthew 4 says. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And why does he ask him to do that? Because he says, if you're really in charge of angels, if you are who you say you are, all you've got to do is call them and they will catch you before you dash your foot against a stone. Let's see if you can command these holy beings, this Elohim. Jesus says to him, you don't put your Lord God to the test. That's a nice way of saying, let's don't forget who's in charge here. He just dismisses him. The third temptation. Satan took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you just bow down to me. How can Satan say that? Because in a very real sense, he could have. They were his. In a sense. And under God, in a sense. But he says, essentially, Jesus, if you say you're the last Adam... If you're the promised one, 
then your heavenly father intends to give you all this stuff, but he's going to do it in a way you won't like. And all you've got to do is bow down to me. You're ready right now. You don't have to suffer anything else. You don't have to go to that cross. You don't have to be patient anymore. Just take the fruit. And Jesus said, be gone. He knew Adam's failure and it wasn't going to be his. And so he begins his public ministry. The devil left him. And who comes and attends to the Lord Jesus? The angels of heaven. They knew who had dominion. Jesus spends much of his public ministry putting demons on notice that their time is coming to an abrupt end. When you read the Gospels, if, if you've read the Gospels recently and you have good memory of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does it not seem like Jesus is encountering a demon around every corner? Because he was. He was coming to set things right. And by the way, this is an aside, and it's not a mean-spirited criticism of any denomination or any religious movement within God's church. I believe the problem with so many charismatics who still see demons behind every corner is that their theology doesn't take into account the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Say, what do you, what do you mean by that? Jesus in the Gospels encounters so many people sick, mute, deaf, diseased because of demons, and in every case, he sets things right to prove that he is here to take dominion. But remember, God would use the most helpless, the most vulnerable, to really silence his enemies, according to Psalm 8. And who is more helpless and who is more vulnerable than a criminal crucified and hung naked on a cross? You want to know what Jesus thought about his death? This is his commentary on the cross. John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said, looking at the cross, now judgment is upon this world. See, if, if you don't at least get something of what I'm saying, that statement doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? The cross is not about judgment. It's about salvation. It's about salvation for man, but it's about judgment upon the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now judgment is upon this world. He saw the cross as salvation for man and judgment for rebellious angels. He said, this is his second statement about his death on the cross. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He calls Satan the ruler of this world at that time. But something was about to change. And it was this. He said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he did. In his 
perfect life, he did what Adam could not do. In his death, he pronounced judgment upon the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, and he removed Satan's ability to blind the nations. And he said, when I die, and when I'm buried, and when I'm raised again, and I'm ascended to the Father, at the ascensions, the nations will be given to me, and the world will begin to come in. Man will be restored to his rightful place. Dominion over all things. And that's where we've been for 2,000 years. I know what you're thinking. You're saying, this guy hadn't watched the news in a long time. <laughs> you're saying that Jesus Christ right now from heaven rules and reigns. And we are in a stage of ruling and reigning with him. Yes and amen. That's what I'm saying. You're saying, it doesn't look like it. It's not supposed to. So how do you know that? Hebrews chapter 2. I close with this. Hebrews chapter 2 tells you it's going to be this way. Now listen. Because I think this is what David sees in Psalm 8 that just sums it all up and brings it all together. Because it is Psalm 8 that's quoted here by the writer of Hebrews. This is how the New Testament preaches the passage that I've just preached to you. The writer of Hebrews has for two chapters, and he'll go on for part of another one. He's been making a big deal about Jesus being superior to what? Angels. Why does he take so much time doing that? Just listen to the recording of the sermon. Go back and you'll, you'll hear it over and over again. Because angels were a big deal. They had been running the show for a long time. And the writer of Hebrews, in holding up Jesus as superior to angels, says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, meaning the world we live in right now and the eternal world. God never intended to subject this world to the dominion of spiritual beings, as powerful as they are. He says, it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor. And you put everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to man, he left nothing outside of his control. And then this is what the writer says. And this is for you today. He says, at the present, we don't yet see everything under Everything in subjection to him. At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, Jesus. Made a little lower than the angels. He had to be. That was the world in which he was to be born. Crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of his death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
The writer of Hebrews says, when you turn on your news, don't start writing a theological manual from what you see on television. Don't get your doctrine from MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News. You'll be a pathetic sort of Christian if you do. Well, if I don't look at that and form my worldview, where do I look? He says we see him. Born of a virgin, 30 years in obscurity, three years in public ministry, beaten, crucified, shamed, hung naked on a cross, three days later raised from the dead, 40 days later exalted to the right hand of God. The nations are his, church. The nations are his. And our job as the church now tell me if this doesn't make more sense. Jesus' last words to his disciples, all authority has been given unto me. Does that statement not make sense? All authority, guys, has been given unto me. Go into all the world, teaching and baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. How can he say that? Because the world's his. And by virtue of it being his, it's mine. And it's yours if you're in Christ. He has done what Adam could not do. He has done what you cannot do. Look away from yourself and look to the crucified and risen Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we gather over this table and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, blessed God, that you look upon the helpless and the meek and you care for them in such a way that you silence your enemies. And we thank you that you cared for your son in his life, in the brutal death that he died, and you cared for him by raising him from the dead, and in doing so, you have silenced the enemy and the avenger. We thank you, Father, that you've exalted him to your right hand, and we come now to commemorate the event in which the entire created order turned. Jesus was exalted. The heavenly host was put down into its proper place. And you, Father, were magnified by all of it. Come, Father, and feed us by your Holy Spirit upon the broken body of your Son. And with his shed blood, nourish our faith that we may be able to look past the headlines and see him. We bless your name. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus, who rules and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.